Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here today with Timothy Boyle, Dr. Timothy Boyle, right? Just call uh, me today. Okay. And, I only got uh, called Timothy when my mom was angry with me. <laughs> Tim and I go back. Uh, we were just talking to 1986. We crossed paths in uh, Tsukuba, Ibaraki, Japan, and worked there together for a while. But Tim, t- t- can you just tell a little bit, because you started out to be a meteorologist, as I understand it. How, how in the world did you end up in Japan? I was a physics major in, at university in Arizona. Back in the 60s, the uh, U.S. government had a program there at the East-West Center in Hawaii, it was for junior year abroad program. It was for uh, students who in universities and colleges that, that didn't offer Oriental languages to study either Japanese or Chinese. And so I kind of on a lark, I said, you know, Hawaii, all expenses paid. Hmm, that sounds kind of interesting, you know, and broadened my horizons a bit. And so I applied for it. It was one of 12 around the nation who was selected to study Japanese. And that Another was 12- what? What year are we talking that you began? 67, 68. So this, uh, and this is kind of a key part of your story, I think, because you just seem to have a natural gift for the language. And a lot of the work that you've done is involved translating and working with the language. So anyway, you, you went to Hawaii and studied Japanese. It's a full 15 month program, you know, First summer, summer is 67 through the whole school year. And then the summer 68 in Japan, living with host families. And then you got drafted, right? Well, I had a National Science Foundation fellowship at Florida State to study meteorology, to get a PhD in that. And that was during the Vietnam War. And they entered the draft deferment for grad students and had a lottery. My birthday came up right away. And uh, so I was one of the ones that was drafted. It was a long story. I ended up actually being able to get out of doing active military service and stuff. I wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea of marching in the jungles of Vietnam or something, you know. Ended up, I was able to get uh, a deferment, but I'd lost that fellowship in Florida, you know, and so I had to, I had this opportunity to go to Japan as a three-year short-term missionary with the United Methodist Church and I decided, oh, that would be kind of interesting. Let's do that first. And if I figured, well, that's not for me, I can go back to grad school mm-hmm. uh, and continue on the path I was on. You know. So you ended up staying in Japan. Was scuba the first place you came to? No, it was this three-year short-term thing was in Hokkaido in, okay. in Sapporo. Oh, oh okay. And, uh, that's where my wife's from. We got married in 74. And I came back to go to seminary and uh, was in the U.S. from you know eight years. Yeah. And then went back as regular missionaries from then again. So you met Juji who in uh, in Hokkaido. Then then you came to Tsukuba. You no, know, we went back to Hokkaido again for the first term from 82 oh. to 86. We were invited. You know, the, the church up there was trying to get us to be able to come back. And that's how we ended up coming back then. Then uh, this opportunity to go to Scuba opened up and that seemed to be right down my alley. So 
that's where we ended up. And that probably just needs some context because it's scuba science city. It is a city. I would guess there's more scientists in scuba than anywhere uh, in the world. And that's in one city. Could be. I don't know. There's a lot of foreigners coming from various, you know, to various research institutes there. They had, by the way, your listeners may want to know that it's not scuba diving kind of scuba. It's Tsukuba. Yes, and that's uh, that was my confusion in my simple-minded uh, world. I I had spent time in uh, Kagoshima and did scuba diving every week, and so I thought, oh, this is providential. God sending me to a town named Sukuba, <laughs> <laughs> but no scuba diving in Scuba. <laughs> uh-huh. I know we were talking about Harry Burton Lewis, who's kind of a dynamic guy who had a lot of things going, including the we both taught at the King Q. Called you center center for institutes was english version yeah 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 I, uh, <laughs> so we taught they were all scientists from scuba and there you begin working uh and translating for reasons to believe yeah i first met uh hugh ross in the mid 90s when we had it's a long story how i finally found this reasons to believe ministry but i'd heard him on on a radio program uh, focused on the family actually and and that took me a while to find the, the get contact and stuff. And I thought, hey, this guy is really putting the science and faith aspects together the right way. Not the young earth creationist type of a thing, but real, you know, real scientist who's got it together. And uh, and so anyway, we had him over a total of seven times over the years. Through the, oh, really? Wow. The wow. 90s and the 20s. Uh, 2000 yeah 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 i met him uh, i maybe it was one of the first times when we he went and spoke at the uh ayama conference right yeah which is just the national missionary conference yeah, yeah. was that the first time i th- yes it was that, that was in 85 and then did you translate some of his st- i know you translated for him but did you yeah. translate some of his materials well there's three books uh you know the first one was the creator and the cosmos and then the the Genesis question and t- creation and time. These three books are, were I, with of course help. I translated those into Japanese. We published them there, and mm-hmm. a, a DVD and a couple and a booklet as well. Uh, how did the Japanese respond to Hugh Ross's stuff? Well, of course, it depends on what the context was. But and you had, as I say, you, you were there when that. Uh, Dr. Usami, you know, gave a response to, uh, you know, Hugh Ross's pr- uh, presentation. You know, he's the young earth st- creationist strong, you know, and there's this, this unfortunate animosity that anybody who doesn't toe the line with their version of creation is somehow a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there is, so that's, and yeah, we, that was on display in, in several of the contexts, but that's, you know, that issue over there is not nearly as, is in the church is not nearly as strong as it is here, you know. Right. In this right. Region, but it's still there. You know, there's there, there's that aspect. It's really unfortunate, but that's yeah. And so then, after you left Scuba, you worked with the Baraku Liberation Center, and I think this is pertains where we're going with Tim. Uh, uh, Tim has done a lot of work on the issue of shame and guilt and how that plays into theology. Uh, the explanation of first of all what the Baraku Liberation Center is, and can you explain a little bit first of all what that's all about? Okay, so the Baraku is just a term that means village it, normally, but it's it's kind of a euphemism for the and let's see if you had the word mean on it, it'd be like Baraku mean would be the 
the people of the Buraku, which is uh, they're the outcasts of Japan, rather similar actually to the untouchables in India, although it's not a caste system in Japan by any means. But these people from about a thousand years ago, you know, part of the, the culture, cultural background is that uh, they're very, very much focused on defilement and purification type stuff. And so if you're put into the defiled category, because for instance, you kill animals and skin them for the hides and all this sort of stuff, uh, that's a very defiling type of a, of a work. And so over the years, this developed into um, these people were ostracized completely, put out, they were outside of the whole system. And even though sometimes they did very rather well financially because they controlled the, the leather industry, it was a very considered very defiling, and so ordinary people weren't allowed to have contact and uh, that sort of stuff with them. So they are kind of the untouchables, and as I understand yeah. it, the though that this has changed, but they're actually they are a, a, an oppressed group financially, educationally, just basic health uh, for years uh, yeah. was problematic in Braku uh, communities. Yeah, the uh, I mean, c compared to what it was in the Edo area, you know, the feudal times and stuff, and even into the until fairly recent times, you know, pre-war times in Japan, uh, you know, that is compared to that, it's it's not nearly as 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 overt, and uh, so the discrimination there is it's interesting. Well, there's there's kind of three general categories of 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 discrimination in human societies, you know something based on your ethnicity or race, and then there's gender discrimination, and then there's class discrimination. And they would fit into this class dis discrimination type thing, which is something that in American context, we don't really run into all that much. Ours is more focused on, you know, ethnic type of mm -hmm. discrimination. And, uh, and so it's a little hard for us to picture that because, you know, uh, as far as their, their looks, their, the names they have, any other kind of thing like that, other than where they're from, you know, there is their family registry, their address, this is where you're from, you're from that Burak, ooh, we don't want to touch you. You know, other than that, uh, there's no way to distinguish them. And so they can be kind of hidden, and they, and oftentimes they do, they just kind of try to hide their identity. But it comes to, when it comes to employment, and then also uh, ordinary type things, uh, you know, if, uh, uh, if you have a uh, somebody you want to get married to that is from that, and you're not from that group. So then the family is often, no, 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 you can't do that. That's going to defile the family. That kind of discrimination, although not nearly as serious as it used to be, is still a problem. And that's a major thing that detective agencies do, I guess. That Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's the major thing, but they, they do that to, to check out whether this person is from a Buraku or not. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so run, run down the run down the background. It's illegal, but they still do it. Yeah, and I think this is indicative of where we're going to go. But let's put a bookmark there. I've always been a little confused by the Buraku community. First of all, because in Buddhism, Buddha, of course, supposedly did away with the caste system, and yet this seems tied to. Buddhism, or is it? Am I wrong in that? Not directly. I mean, because it was uh, the, uh, the the Buddhist and the Shinto uh, aspect of Japan 
I mean, you know, Buddhism came into Japan in, you know, roughly 700 AD type of a, of a time frame until the Edo period, beginning in the 1600s. Buddhism was not a religion of the masses at all in Japan. There was only just a few elite type things and the, uh, you know, some of the famous Buddhist monks and, and, and their small followings and stuff were Buddhists. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority were just the Shinto. Uh, and you and this discrimination you're saying is prior to the entry of Buddhism, not prior to the entry of Buddhism, but prior to to it becoming the sort of religion, uh, you know, the of Japan type stuff, you know. And that come that came along in the 1600s in the Edo period when the government decided to ostracize. I mean, that may you know, just to close off the country entirely from the outside world and ban Christianity, which had you know, the, the Jesuits came in 1549 and that for that 50 some odd years, Christianity in Japan grew rapidly, but it was tied to colonialism. And so that was, it was seen as a tool for the uh, colonial powers come in and take Japan over type stuff. They used Buddhism to force everybody to, you know, register with a Buddhist temple so that they could control them and, and stamp out Christianity. And that's how Buddhism became the, the, the ridge of the masses. But, but the whole Buraku stuff, they used to call them etta, which is, means uh, great filth, right. literally the two, uh, the two words there. And so they ha- that, that system was well in place before Buddhism was the dominant religion. In Kagoshima, <laughs> I used to scuba dive in the bay where the mm-hmm. first Buddhist monk landed in Japan. And I don't know if you know that in Kagoshima, you know, what we know of Kakure Christians, that there's yeah, hidden right. Christians, but actually in Kagoshima, there were the hidden Buddhists. Yeah. Did you know that? Sort of. I mean, I, wouldn't, I didn't know specifically about Kagoshima thing like that, but I know that it was not. I mean, there was, uh, you know, the Buddhist type of, of thought in their traditions and stuff like that wasn't just instantly you received and made, oh, yeah, this is where we want to go type stuff, you know. Yeah, there was. was a, I remember we there's a little museum down there, and in the doorposts they would have little hidden Buddhas they'd pull out and hide it away again. Yeah, and they, and then then they had the the Buddha statues, the little door in the back that had a Madonna and Jesus or something. Right, like right. Really <laughs> in the in Nagasaki, right? In the, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that kind of gives some background. But before we go there. Uh, uh, among other things that you've done, you've written a couple of books on the uh, Japanese writing system. Can you explain the significance of what you're doing with that? Well, I first put out a book in Japanese. It was uh, it was originally published in Japanese. The English title would be Bible Stories Hidden in Chinese Characters. And of course, the, the Japanese adopted Chinese characters as the writing system back in the Around six seven hundred AD is when they were first importing these characters. They had no writing system at all before then, and uh, then they developed uh, what called hiragana and katakana. There's kind of syllabic alphabet type of a thing that they used in conjunction with that. They developed that later on, but uh, they just wholesale imported the Chinese characters and studying the origins of these from from China. Of course, it turned to be very interesting. There were some work out before uh, about how the associations of the end of the character parts to make a certain character, how similar some those were to the stories in Genesis and whatever. 
And so the basic theory is that and there's no you know, hard evidence for this because all that kind of evidence of, of what they had in mind when they made this, there's no, no recordings of that. So we're just going on basis of, their, of the Chinese, ancient Chinese worldview, their religious practices, and the characters themselves. But there, that circumstantial evidence points to the, to, uh, quite strongly to the fact that uh, the ancient Chinese scribes at least had similar concepts and stories to what we find in Genesis and other parts of the Bible as far as that goes. So there's some sort of connection between ancient, the ancient Near East and ancient China where these uh, stories had been transmitted. Or And the, the ancient Chinese had uh, very similar uh, ceremonies where they, they worshipped the above emperor, you know, the heavenly god. And uh, the, their emperor of China had these ceremonies that look very similar to what you have in the Old Testament. The words they used are very reminiscent of the Old Testament concepts. And so then you have these characters that, that when you break them apart and look at the associations, gee, if, if they had that uh, story in mind when they put this together, it would make perfect sense why they chose those. Can you give us a, a few examples of the, the characters? <laughs> the one I have on the back of this book here that is, it's not so much from Genesis per se, but from the Bible as a whole, uh, the character for righteousness, it shows that the, the, uh, it's made up of uh, three parts. The, the top part is, is a lamb or sheep, and the bottom part is the, the ego or the self, and that ego or self character is made up of hand and spear. So you can kind of picture they had, you know, you're, you're emphasizing your ego, you put, you know, you have a spear in your hand, kind of a image, and that a violent is, image. Yeah, sort of a violent image. And so that that character by itself is I or, you know, me, mm -hmm. you know, type of thing, the ego. And then, you know, from the Christian standpoint, if you put the ego, you're the self under the lamb, well, that's a perfect association to put together with righteousness. Wow. Now, the, wow. the ancient Chinese, what they had in mind specifically, we don't know. It certainly wasn't, uh, they had no contact with uh, with the Old Testament and, and the Bible and stuff at that point, because this was made, you know, this would be, have been, this association been made in the time of Abraham or even before, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's that old. And there, and there are just numerous characters, uh, one kind of interesting one that's, you know, the, the Tower of Babel uh, story, you have the, the character for Tower, it's made up of several parts. Uh, one of the parts is the character for to unite, which is made up of three parts, which is person or people, and then the symbol for one, and then the symbol for a mouth, which can either be a person or it could be words or language. You, you, you have to kind of choose. And in that mm -hmm. one sense, it's a little bit of cherry picking there because you're, mm -hmm. you have some point, oh, this could fit. And, and mm -hmm. you, you have to choose among several possibilities. And, and somebody with a different agenda could come up with some other association, you know, and say, okay, well, that's that means that or something. And there's no record one way or the other, which they which is true. Uh -huh. But the fact is that there's so many that fits, you know, right, right. hundreds that fit this way. And I don't think you do that with a completely different agenda and get it to work. But yeah. anyway, back to the tower, you know, so that it's made up of people, one language. Well, that's you that's unite to unite the people together. And then they, they added the characters for uh, soil or clay, and then also uh, for uh, grass, which would be straw. Well, straw and clay, that's how you make bricks. Wow. Right? wow. Yeah. And, and so you put, you know, you got you, the well, people of one language to unite, and you got uh, bricks, 
and that whole thing means tower. Well, wow. Wow. it sounds like they had some sort of association in mind of that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's lots of them like that, you know? What's the one with the, the character for boat? Yeah, for a large ship has, you know, the, the, the pictograph for like a dugout canoe type of a small boat, and it has eight people, uh, you know, made up of those three things, you know, a, a, just a, a canoe or a boat type stuff in general, and then eight and people. Well, it sounds a little bit like Noah's Ark. You know, I've yeah. probably had people on Noah's Ark, you know. And then the one, what's the one for temptation? The, the tempter, I guess you're probably thinking of that. Oh. Has, there's a lot of characters have the, the, the uh, character with, uh, that has uh, two trees in it, like two special trees. And actually the one I think is even more is it has two trees and, and the picture of a snake slithering through those two trees. That, that's the ancient form of the pictograph. And that evolved into the character meaning to negate. Oh, so oh. it's like uh, you're negating what God said, you know, in the tree and the Garden of Eden type story. Yeah, yeah. And that's it, it's a pictograph that really fits. And then the tempter thing, you have the t- symbol for the devil, and then those t- same two trees under the cover of two trees, you know, yeah. and that's the tempter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and there's I, just lots of those that fit together, like. Yeah, it's just fascinating. How many characters that did you do in your book? Well, in the book, there's a total of 200 and whatever it was, 230 or something like that. Not all of them are directly related to Genesis and, and, and the stories. You know, there's some other associations that fit other contexts. And so I've got, you know, those as well in the book. Tell me your broad conclusions. What, what's the takeaway from that? Of the book, is of the whole idea? Then? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the basic thing is is that the ancient Chinese were, and, and this is true actually around the around the world, you know, because anthropologists used to think that religions of the world developed starting from polytheistic concepts, you know, the spirits and the and the trees and the and the mountains and rivers, whatever, you know, this kind of uh, uh, naturalistic uh, animism, animism type stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and and then it gradually developed, and became monotheism later. But now that's been basically turned on its head, you know, in modern studies of, of anthropology and stuff, we, we realize that the, that the original religions of the world were basically at, were monotheistic. Mm. And the polytheism is something that comes in later. And you definitely see that in, in ancient China through, and through the study of these characters that, that shows you that, plus, of course, their ancient tradition. They, if you go to, even to Beijing now, you know, they have the, the Temple of Heaven there, that, that's, that's only about 500 years old. But they have a big three-tiered uh, mound in the front there uh, that has where they did the ancient sacrifices to the heavenly emperor, you know. Say like the, the character for sacrifice, it's made up of uh, four parts, the, uh, uh, the sheep again, and then uh, a cow or ox or bull, you know, mm-hmm. and then perfection, and then again that spear. So in other words, uh, you had a perfect you know, sheep or, or or bull that you sacrifice with the spear, and that's the word for that's the character for sacrifice. And they did that right there on the on these in these places for the last four thousand years or more. And that and so, was that Shang Ti. Is that the uh... yeah Shang Shang Di Shang Ti? There's various versions pronunciations of it, but that's the above emperor. You know, the two characters for that and the Chinese mm-hmm. pronunciation. Mm-hmm. That even goes that confucius is referring to shang yeah he, yeah he does directly in some of his writings he talks about that 
And so the whole idea of, you know, these polytheistic versions of, of more, you know, if even if you're talking about Taoism or whatever these other concepts and stuff they have in, in China, and you can call them religion, they are much more modern. Even the character for Buddhism itself is kind of interesting because it's made up of that character I was talking about before, the negate, you know, which is the two, the two special trees with a snake slithering through them thing. Mm -hmm. And then they added the person, a radical, to that, to the side. The whole idea of, in Buddhism was, you know, kind of negating the self. And that's, you know, you get to nirvana and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, that it, it, and that ain't the most ancient version of that character that's ever been found is a much more modern one. So in other words, it wasn't among the original characters. It's something that was developed later on. The obvious conclusion is that they developed that character with that association to describe this central uh, doctrine of, of Buddhism. Huh. And that's uh, the character used for Buddhism, you see. Uh, the word negate, that is the, the two trees and the serpent, is yeah. picked up by Buddhism, and they add the uh, person. Yeah, there was the the the, uh, the radical that means person or yeah, yeah. self. I mean, who made that association? Whether it was a Buddhist himself or uh, a Chinese, you know, Confucian scribe or whatever that used it to describe the Buddhism's concept. I, we, nobody knows, but we don't have a record for that. Yeah. But just the result of it is that. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. How would how would you date? the Chinese characters in comparison to other written language systems? Okay, the oldest ones, you know, examples have actually been found are about 3,500 years ago. Uh, so 1500 BC type thing. And they had these, you know, uh, carvings on bones or uh, on turtle shells, things like that that would, that would maintain themselves. And they had a, a similar version of the, where they actually did bronze in other words, where you would have, have the uh, inscription done with the, I guess they originally used sand, or I'm not sure say how they did it originally, but then they made a mold and poured the, the molten bronze into it to form these, these uh, vessels of some sort. And they're all religious vessels, and they have a lot of these ancient forms of the characters written in that. And those are the things that remain, of course. You know, mm -hmm. other, any other m material they would have used would have long disappeared that's the, the ones that we have actually available to the study how does it compare to hieroglyphs or the well i mean hieroglyphic type things uh, they they you know in, in ancient egypt they i mean we don't know exactly when the earliest forms of these chinese characters would have been but obviously a good bit older than the examples we have right and right. and from the standpoint of of the history that's being recorded of ancient china and stuff that goes back in uh, you know, 2500 uh, BC type, that kind of range. And, and Egypt goes back a little bit earlier than that. You got the full Chinese system, I guess, that, that unfolds this story or this ancient understanding. I'm not sure that's there in the hieroglyphs. Yeah, because the hieroglyphs uh, themselves, you know, were, it's kind of interesting how I've, I'm, I've done some reading on that. And, uh, and I do have a little bit in my book, just kind of comparing the two on how they how that come about. But uh, th there were not nearly as many of the hieroglyphs as there ended up being mm -hmm. Chinese characters, you know, mm -hmm. and they use them kind of more like an alphabet. And there was even though it was a pictograph with of a, of a picture of a hawk or whatever it is that they have a symbol they have there then they developed kind of an alphabet from that. 
And there's interesting evidence, even more fairly recently found, that Proto-Hebrew was developed from these hieroglyphs. The idea of an alphabet where it's, it's a symbol for a sound and have with no association with the meaning that goes with that, with that whatever pictograph you were, you know, that kind of thing was, you know, there's a process how that developed. And uh, usually the ancient Phoenicians are credited with the first alphabet. And perhaps that, you know, I think that's probably still the, the consensus of a lot of the, the scholars. But there's some, and I just been reading about some interesting findings of even older uh, forms of Proto-Hebrew that perhaps, you know, the, it looks like they were developed from these, from some hieroglyphs that, you know, maybe they were the first ones to have the alphabet. Who knows? Wow. Well, well. that's, that's how it's going. You know, it's yeah. lots of interesting defines, you know, that's fascinating. The other thing that you've worked on that I, th I find just fascinating, you seem to be in the middle of everything, Tim, and that is the, <laughs> that you have been working on the translation of Wounded Tiger. And I, I was uh, hoping you could tell us that story. Okay, well, I first became associated with the, the author of this uh, story. Uh, his name is Martin Bennett, about 10 years ago. And that was through a, a missionary friend who, was, who knew him. And, and Martin came up uh, with, uh, did a lot of study back uh, I guess he started around uh, 2006 or seven or somewhere around there. But uh, this pilot who led the Pearl Harbor raid, his name is Mitsuo Fuchida. He's got a, just an amazing story. So this, he put together uh, in a novelized form. So it's, it's, it's not strictly 100% everything completely historical because in order to make it into a, to novelize it, you have to, you obviously have to create uh conversations and put the you, know, you, you got them some recorded data of what happened whatever but you got to kind of figure out well how does that fit into a whole storyline and so there's that kind of artistic license that he has to use mm -hmm. but the story basically it, the subtitle is that um it's called the the pilot who led the pearl harbor attack whose life was changed by an american prisoner and a girl he never met that's the subtitle the novel itself is is a story with three strands in it uh, that are, that first seem completely unrelated. So you have uh, this how this Fuchida how he his story how he developed he was you know so focused on Japan's uh, you know becoming a, a a dominant power in the world and you know just like the Europeans had done you know and and he, you know focused on the reverence of the emperor and that whole system you know. And then uh, the second strand is a guy named Jake DeShazer, who was one of the Doodle Raiders. Uh, so the Doodle Raid was uh, in response to the Pearl Harbor attack. And they had some, I think it was 16 uh, bombers that they were able to retrofit so they could actually take off from an aircraft carrier, which they, everybody thought was impossible, but they were able to do that. And they flew over Japan, dropped their payloads, and then flew over trying to get to the free parts of China, and Jake's plane didn't make it. They had to bail out, and he was captured, and along with his his crew and another crew in China and, or in China, in China. Yeah, but yeah. they were Japan occupied China. You see, in other words, so the Japanese were in control of that. So, right, right. so he was put into into POW camp for and suffered t terribly during the you know, for the whole rest of the war. So, three and a half years or so. 
This, the third strand is the a missionary family by the name of Covell. And they uh, had is, worked in Japan in the pre-war years. Uh, he was a real advocate for peace. And uh, they had to escape, you know, to, well, to leave Japan in 1940 when things were getting pretty dicey. And they went to the Philippines thinking they'd be safe there. But and that, of course, Japan uh, conquered the Philippines and, and occupied it. And so they weren't safe. <laughs> they ended up in a prisoner war camp or? No, well, they, they were, they escaped into the, into the hills and then were later discovered and executed, actually. Oh, wow. wow. And, but their daughter had, who's back in the States, and uh, she was instrumental. She was the girl he had never met, you know, that had this big impact on him. Uh-huh. And she worked in uh, the prisoner war camps in, in, the, U- in the U.S., and since she spoke Japanese, born and raised there, you know, she she helped these Japanese prisoners. And one of those prisoners had, was was uh, Fujita's chief uh, chief engineer, his mechanic for his plane. Hmm. And uh, and so when that guy came back, and and Fujita heard the story of this girl who he couldn't just his blew his mind that she would, you know, her parents had been murdered by by Japanese soldiers, and yet she would go and serve them. Hmm. You know, that just blew his mind. Then he heard the story of Jake Dusager, who who came back to Japan as a missionary, seeking, you know, how do you get out of the 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 cycle of revenge and hatred? You know, it is through reconciliation and forgiveness. And so that was his message coming back. And so he met that message, plus hearing his the testimony of his pilot of his mechanic saying you know, what this girl had done. And well, let me let me summarize what you said. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. All these huge, do, one of Doolittle's Raiders, DeShazer, what was his first name? Uh, Jake. Jake DeShazer, who is, spends most of the war in a prisoner of war camp in China, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, is going to come back to Japan. Yeah, he came and, back a, a couple of years later and as a missionary. As a and missionary. And right. he then encounters Fuchida. Yeah, they didn't actually physically meet until later on, but the story, you know, he, he, Jake had a, a pamphlet, you know, I was a prisoner of Japan, you know, and telling his testimony. And he went around uh, sharing that, you know, he, he'd come at, for revenge and he was had so much hatred in his heart. And he realized how lost and how, you know, how wrong he was with that kind of attitude. And then had this deep love for the Japanese now and even his... You know, his, the, his uh, guard in prison who had tortured him, you know, he, he came and, and they, you know, they, they became friends after the war. And he, and through forgiveness, had been, you know, that, that fellow became a Christian too. Wow. So anyway, the, the effect was that, that Fujita looking at this and said, I got to find this secret. Why, why would they do this? How could they possibly do this? And so I, he talked about reading the Bible. I'm going to get a Bible and, and figure out what all this is about. And that's how he came to faith. It was it, it was quite a long process there too, and they of course they met later on and became buddies and and uh, and traveled together somewhat and you know did things some things like that together. As, so you know, somebody so handed Fuchida. Was it at a train station that somebody handed yeah, it, him one of these? Yeah, pamphlets? At Shibuya, Shibuya Station. They're right outside the little the the famous old dog, the Hachiko. You know this this uh, bronze statue of the of the. Right. dog who was so faithful to its master type stuff you know and so it's kind of a really nice little add to the story there then yeah and so there's the shazer there's fuchida and then the missionary family 
Oh, and Peggy Covell was her name. Then, yeah. Peggy. And so this is all coming together in the novel. Right. And so how all these three strands come together in this amazing way at the end. And, and Fujita is transformed from, you know, a warrior focused on, you know, on the, based on hate and, and get the enemy type stuff, hmm. you know, to somebody who's, and of course he was uh, going, you know, he went around apologizing for what Japan had done and, and saying how wrong that was and this sort of stuff, and then seeking forgiveness and then saying how Christ had changed his life so radically. And he had led the raid on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, he was he was the chief the chief guy. Yeah, and he was the only one that survived. Is that uh, right? Yeah, because everybody else, all of the other pilots, you know, and and you know, various other battles and whatever through the war, and you know, Fuchida. That's another thing that that really affected him. He was so many times when he should have been dead, and yet somehow he managed to survive. And it was kind of like, you know, why me? How how what, what what's going on here? You know. So it's God so, had designs on his life for some reason, which he couldn't fathom, couldn't understand. Yeah, yeah. And Bennett put all this together. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's been what well, he's been working on this about ten years. You said that he writing the novel. Well, I guess now it's probably fifteen. Yeah. But he, he has a uh, a major investor now. Just just a, just a few months ago, they're putting together a, a marketing campaign. Uh, so it'll be it'll be pretty big, you know. And this will come out in the next few months. And then the goal is to actually get it into a movie. And there's, he, he's had offers from, you know, back in the past, this a few years ago, from uh, Hollywood producers and stuff for this story. But they would have total control over how it was used. Right. And right. from previous experience of other similar movies and whatever, they took out all the, you know, the Christian elements and stuff. It's, it's not a, you know, it's not a, a preachy type of a thing like a, lots of, you know, like a like an expanded gospel track or something like that. You know, right, this, right. You know, this is just actual history written in novelized form, and the the various things that happen, and the, the you know, there's lots of uh, atheists even who read this and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Even though they don't buy the the God part of it, you know. Right. Yeah. Here you have these. I mean, just historic figures all encountering one another. It's just almost unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Truth is stranger than fiction type of thing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. If somebody would make something up like that, you say, ah, oh, no, that could, but yeah, it's just so fascinating. So you have also then done a lot of work on the kind of the difference that we've kind of set up the context of presenting the gospel in Japan and the thing that you encounter. And of course, I think maybe this is just a kind of universal experience. I, I hope that most missionaries that go to Japan realize, hey, this is a, this is a different context, and especially around the issue of uh, shame and guilt. And so, can you describe then that difference that you encountered? Well, and, and anthropologists have, have traditionally uh, categorized cultures in terms of these uh, of shame culture or guilt culture. And those kind of go together with individualistic and, and group orientations as well. And uh, so Japan is in the shame culture and the group oriented culture. So, you know, American individualism doesn't really fit naturally in that context. And, uh, you know, you, it, it, the citizens aren't just made 
individually you know it's it's part of a group it's part of a you know you have to have that kind of understanding and, and of course this is not as much today as it used to be because a lot of you know in japan has become westernized and so you run into very kind of pushy individualistic type people there too but they're much rarer than would be in the american context but you now if you have a message that is developed around the shame, the the um the concept of original sin for instance you know adam and eve their original sin is taint all humanity you know we are sinners due to original sin being transmitted to us even when we're born you know that kind of concept and then if you have a message that you're saying you are a sinner you need to get right with god and receive god's forgiveness well if you just tr- translate that literally into japanese and then and use that as your evangelistic approach it won't produce much fruit because the cultural soil you might say is not it doesn't lend itself to that now just take the word for sin the japanese term sumi it means sin of course but it also means crime there's no distinction made in the language so uh and the same their same issue with with permission with what well, the word for yurushi which means permission or forgiveness so technically the tsumi no yurushi you know this is not really going to happen but technically it could mean permission for crimes instead of forgiveness for sins <laughs> and, which would be slightly different you would say uh, yeah. and so but anyway the point is that, that it's you know that it's just so vague and so the communication is is ad, you know adequate communication is rarely achieved in that kind of a of a concept and then but if you look at the bible itself you know look at ancient hebrew culture and, and how it's portrayed there you can see actually that it's a shame uh shame culture with group orientation very similar to to japan and other many other cultures and so it's not the kind of culture that we're used to you know and the in the in the bible itself and so just look at the at the original story of, of, of the fall the you know the word sin is not used until cain kills abel and mm-hmm. the in chapter three the symbols used are uh nakedness and shame you they were ashamed right. they were naked they were ashamed right so it's shame and nakedness and what is done to, for that is god pr- uh, provides clothes of skin animal skins so that means he's got to sacrifice an animal to do that mm-hmm. and so that this first sacrifice of an animal is to make to make a, a clothing out of skins in order to cover their shame that's the symbolism of the bible mm-hmm. and that that symbolism fits much easier into uh, the japanese context and, and that's so the that, i mean that's the end of the story is that christ will provide white robes of righteousness there's a lot of clothing imagery yeah exactly there. And, and that and all through the 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 bible you have that symbolism of a covering of shame for instance uh, uh sin is often symbolized by filthy rags that you're wearing right and so there's a there's verses that say you know i'm going to remove your filthy rags and clothe you in 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 the garments of righteousness that kind of thing if if you were to say okay uh, i'm going to get rid of these filthy rags of mine what's left the shame of your nakedness right either way you got it yeah (laughs) so that the 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 nakedness part of it that is the more fundamental of the two Mm -hmm. and so the shame that goes with that is the is more fundamental than the guilt uh due to your to your deeds it really is describing a different problem isn't it It, within the japanese context you know traditionally being a, a shame culture uh 
there's the concept of a almighty holy god who is going to judge you and that he sees everything you're doing and therefore the kinds of things that would you know prevent you from doing sinful things you know because you're going to be accountable that's it. that that whole basis is is not really part of their traditional understanding and it's so shame inducing picture of god yeah you can say that so there was the god in, in, induces the shame in other words in other words you, you lose face before your 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 creator and so restoring face you know that's another way of looking at it that's very much part of the japanese culture as well the problem with original sin already it mystifies sin but actually when you when you just describe the problem as corporate and a corporate failure you know then you get to cain and abel and then actually the next group is seth and it pictures that seth is not in the image of god but in the image of adam that is mm. that it almost that the failure of humanity seems to be more of a corporate failure than this notion of an individualistic kind of internal failure. Yeah, yeah, you could put it that way. Yeah, because again, this is the, this is the you know the Bible was written within the Hebrew cultural context, and that was a shame-oriented, uh, group-oriented culture, and uh, and so it actually it helps you understand the Bible a lot better too if you get if you have the concepts of this you know this difference between shame and guilt. It's not that we don't have guilt. And actually, when you think about it, you know, the, the, the term original shame, I mean, original sin itself, I was asking uh, at Reasons to Believe, you know, Ken Samples, who's a, who's a theo the theologian there about that. And he was saying that actually that within, I think it's the Orthodox Church, they use the term original guilt as opposed to original sin, which actually makes more sense to me if you're going to use that term at all. But I think original shame is actually yeah. the better term. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. That's what is really there, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, in the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they would very much have the idea of a of a corporate. In other words, they don't hold to Augustinian original sin. Yeah. Uh, they may still use the language of original sin, but what they would mean by that is this kind of corporate, uh, a mimetic failure. That is, that we imitate other people, and what happens yeah. corporately is that's passed on through very obvious ways we're all born into families and cultures that are inherently failed sure well and just again when it comes to communicating the gospel message the, the terms and the symbols and, and concepts you use becomes very important and so uh i remember talking with a, a japanese uh, christian lady who was when i described putting it in those terms you know of original shame and stuff she said that she really wished that her late father had heard it that way because he had heard the the message put in the terms of original sin. It, you know, to kind of use an old pun, he he threw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, <laughs> because right. because it, it made it sound to him so utterly irrational and and uh, and unfair and this sort of stuff. You know, a newborn baby being a sinful being, you know, that kind of stuff. It just didn't resonate with him because he was misinterpreting the concept. No, it seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there is in Japan, and I, I have heard both things in a Japanese context, that is there the concept of uh, children being innocent? How does that play out 
in a, in a Japanese context. We worked at this school that was for uh, returnee children. And actually, there were two educators there that were nation, nationally renowned educators, mm-hmm. and they had developed their whole philosophy of education based on a Russian model, and mm-hmm. strangely enough, had picked up the concept of original sin, not you know, not in any kind of religious understanding, but just oh well, we got these these kids, you know, we need to get this mischievousness out of them, or this and so that was a very harsh system Mm -hmm. but as Mm -hmm. i understand it that that doesn't necessarily fit with the way japanese normally view children right because the uh, the they tend to be very lenient and uh and permissive you might say for a little children the way that for instance they would tell the child not to do something whatever they they would say you know you'll be laughed at that would be the phrase they would use, you know. So, in other words, this this is from the shame culture. You see, right? To be laughed at, so so, so discipline is is more uh, avoiding uh, bringing shame onto or dishonor onto the family or or whatever, you know, as opposed to some sort of ethical standard that's absolute. Yeah, yeah, and that was actually even after I tell that story, even still in the school, they would use systems of shame. It was always a corporate they would corporately shame the kids if they did something wrong. They, they've divided the children up into groups of, I can't remember, what was the five, was it the five village system, seven village system? They did that in this school, and then they would have a, you know, one child that was kind of the head of the group. So mm-hmm. you'd have these huge classrooms, but what you didn't know about the classroom is, yeah, but they're all bundled up into these groups there's a kind of real force that's put on the, you know, the kids to fit into the group. Yeah. Well, another famous saying they have where there's a, you know, the nail that sticks out gets pounded in. That's the kind of the equivalent of our, of our phrase, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but you see the difference uh, culturally what that means. <laughs> the squeaky wheel good. gets the grease is, is, is that, you know, the guy who stands out, who makes a bunch of noise, whatever, gets the grease, whereas the nail that sticks out gets pounded in. That's yeah. the shame culture thing. Uh, I'm curious then, did this carry over for you in your own understanding of what Christ has done for us? Well, yeah, because, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's not either or, it's both and, you know. And, and so, uh, but again, it comes to, you know, whether you visualize it in terms of him taking away our sin, because, you know, by taking our sin onto him on the cross and this sort of stuff. For instance, in Hebrews 12, it's all, you know, Christ on the cross, you know, despising the shame. In other words, you know, that's the word, the term it uses there. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, in other words, he's, he's taking that shame away from us. Either way, the only solution is the, is the road of righteousness that he gives us through faith. Right. And so it's, a, it's, a either, it's not either or, it's both and. This is interesting because I came back to this country with kind of this concept. There is a kind of a famous theologian, actually, he's in in Wales, but he's written a book called Shame. Mm -hmm. And and his point about Western theology is this concept has not been addressed in Western theology. And Mm -hmm. his understanding is, well, this isn't just a cultural phenomenon, but this is a that all humans are afflicted and that, you know, psychoanalytically, 
shame is a much deeper rooted problem than guilt. Right. Be yeah. Because we are shaped by this and it, it is a driving force. And so when the, we talk about scripture addressing shame, it seems to be addressing this much deeper rooted problem yeah. that is often left out of not just theology, but the kind of the Western church experience. His, uh, Stephen Pattison is his name. And his yeah. point is that church in the West, that it can be a kind of a compounding of the shame experience. And so there, rather than dealing with the issue or addressing it, there is kind of a continued cover-up and aggravation of the problem. Yeah, well, if they cover it up with the, with the right thing, the righteousness is all right, but that's, I think you're in a, in a different sense of a different kind right, of Right, right, that, they, yeah. that there's a kind of a, a false cover for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, uh, Tim, I, my kids, when I, I told Joelle that I was going to be talking to you, and she said, oh, I remember, you know, the, Tim did magic. You did a whole <laughs> magic show. What, you did that. Was that at Christmas you would do the uh, magic uh, show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Using uh, little magic tricks to describe something out of the Bible or whatever, you know. <laughs> and then you'd set up the telescope. She remembered uh, uh, looking through the telescope at your place. Yeah. So. She had great, great memories of, of uh, coming over to your place. Yeah. So, well, I sure appreciate the time that we could spend. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to get together physically sometime. But Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, we were counting the years. We probably haven't seen each other since uh Yeah, so probably 17 years. I guess it's probably 17 years. Yeah, since. yeah. <laughs> Where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> And I think we lost, I kind of, we kind of maintained contact. I had this old computer and Faith, you know, she was kind of worried the kids, uh, she didn't want the kids uh, getting into the computer. So she created a password and we all forgot the password. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we got rid of that address and, uh, uh, so we've been, uh, yeah, I think I kind of, you may have been sending me emails. And, and yeah, I did. And, and it was, and it was an old address. So our mutual friend, Paul Clark was said, okay, I've got an address. Let's try this one. You know, and that, and that would work. So we finally made contact. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a great uh, conversation. I'm glad we could do this, Tim. Yeah. Glad we were able to do that. Then. All right, Tim. I'll, uh, I'll right. be in touch with you. All right. Bye -bye. Good, good, good talking. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.